to the Space Rocks podcast. It's an absolute delight to have you back. Thanks so much to everyone who tuned into our first episode. Uh, we thought we'd do another quick one because uh, we're just a few days away from the big Space Rocks London launch. Mark, how's it feel? Oh, it's great. Very exciting. Uh, warm, sunny day here today. By this time on Sunday, it'll probably be snowing. Yeah, we'll see what we get. But, you know, it's it's been a long road to get to this point certainly it, it feels like yesterday that uh, you and i were in touch and uh, i guess this was a bit of a pipe dream but of course uh, i i wondered if we should uh, you know kind of just like uh, raise some of the uh, i guess what feels like the sort of the distant past which isn't that long ago at all just a few years ago how space rocks came about the hashtag campaign and all the other things that you guys have been doing over there for years to connect culture and space the hashtag campaign that really goes all the way back to Tim Peake and uh, my colleagues here, Carl Walker, who's kind of co-conspirator on Space Rocks. Uh, they ran a campaign while Tim was on the International Space Station every day or so, tweeting a lyric from a classic song and then inviting people to get in touch and identify the song. Just a competition, some giveaways. At the same time, we were actually already engaging with musicians across the board with respect to the Rosetta mission. Very famously, Vangelis got involved, but loads of other people. They wrote symphonies, they wrote pop songs, and, and that was great. That was lots of stuff we could de- then do online. But right back then, I thought, how do we bring this out? How do we take it to the public? How do we combine these things live? And that's more or less where you and I got talking. It's been a really enjoyable ride, you know, and I can't wait until the event. And hence, just just want to do this little rundown of what people can expect as a thank you to everyone who's coming down. But also just to illustrate, I guess, the, uh, uh, well, the stuff that we've been planning. So tell us about the concept behind Space Academy and uh, uh, Maggie Lou. Well, you know, we've got so much content here, so many things we do in the solar system and the universe beyond. We can't possibly cover it in just the first Space Rock. So... You know, on the other hand, Maggie, she covers almost all of it in her talk. She's going to be talking about the dark universe, dark matter, dark energy, these both very mysterious components of the universe that we infer the presence of. We know they must be there in some form. We really don't know what they are. They're distinct. They're separate. But they comprise most of the universe, the normal stuff you and I are made of, the planet Earth is made of, your goldfish is made of. That's that's a very small fraction of the material and the energy in the universe. So Maggie's going to be telling us all about that and uh, in particular about a mission that we call Euclid, which is going to launch in a few years' time, which is going to be looking at galaxies across the universe, measuring their properties, giving us a much better handle on dark matter and dark energy. And beyond that, Maggie's a... She's what we call a research fellow. She's a postdoctoral researcher working down at our European Space Astronomy Center in Spain near Madrid. Uh, and she's just an all-round cool space geek. Talking about dark matter, what you're usually talking about is what we don't know as much as what we do. Am I right? We infer the presence of dark matter from the properties of galaxies. For example, galaxies if they were just influenced by the gravity of the material we can see, the material that's glowing that we can measure directly with optical and infrared telescopes, for example, they should rotate at a certain speed under that gravity. They rotate in a very different way. There must be much more material there that's invisible to cause them to rotate at different speeds. The speed is different from the inner part of the galaxy, the outer part of the galaxy. And as we measure what we call a rotation curve, we see there must be unseen material in that galaxy. It's been known about for decades, but we still don't know what it is. 
it's uh, going to be a fascinating chat, certainly, which will lead us right into, uh, you know, a different area of the uh, research spectrum. Matt Taylor. You know Matt very well, and of course Matt's one of the connections between us uh, because you know Matt's a big music fan. Uh, you had him over there for the Golden Gods a few years ago, and that was on the back of him being the project scientist for the Rosetta mission, a very famous uh, comet explorer, comet rendezvous, comet landing mission, uh, which was launched in 2004. Matt came on board as the project scientist a few years later, and then in 2014, we arrived at Comet 67P, Churumov-Garasimienka, and went into orbit around with Rosetta, and in November 2014, put the little lander Philae down on the surface. Uh, and that had huge amount of public impact. That was a really exciting adventure for everybody to be involved with, and uh, Matt's going to give us a flavor of that at Space Rocks on Sunday. Adventure is definitely the word. I mean, in terms of technical feats, I think it's kind of hard to understand this scale of the summit that was reached there. But uh, on a scale of one to 10, Mark, I mean, how hard was that to do? I mean, landing on a comet, that's that's not hitting the moon. It's not to diminish that achievement, of course. It is a huge achievement. You and I are somewhat older generation, so we see Apollo landing on the moon as, as, as a hugely significant event in spaceflight, and of course it is. But what interested me about Rosetta was a younger generation actually saying this was their Apollo moment. And uh, it took us 10 years to get there, flying through the solar system, repeatedly coming past Earth and once past Mars to get the orbit just right. There were so many times it could have gone wrong. Uh, and yet we pulled it off. And I think that's an enormous testament to teamwork, actually. Thousands of people who worked over decades to make that project work. And that actually, that's that's what we do every day here at ESA. It's, it's teamwork. You don't just spend money and have these things happen. People work hard to make these happen. It was an astonishing moment to watch from the outside. I can't imagine the drama on the inside. And our next guest uh, in Space Academy, of course, someone in no way unfamiliar with the concept of drama. I mean, absolutely fascinating to me, particularly because of her Twitter feed, Beth Healy. Beth doesn't work for ESA at the moment. Uh, actually, she seems to spend most of her time in Chamonix in the ski resort. And that's because she's she's a doctor, a medic, and actually has a quite a long history for such a young person in extreme environment, med extreme environment medicine. Let me say that again. So she's worked with expeditions to Greenland, uh, to the North Pole, in the Alps as a doctor. And what she did for us a couple few years ago was go to a place called Concordia, it's a base run by the French and Italian governments right in the middle of Antarctica. Now, most people would think that's the South Pole, but the South Pole isn't actually the middle of the continent of Antarctica. There's a higher place called Dome C, above 3,000 meters altitude, if I recall correctly, and uh, there's a base there. So people go there and spend summers doing certain experiments, for example, drilling down through the ice, several kilometers through the ice to measure the amount of uh, gases trapped in the ice over historical time. That's actually one of the big indicators about climate change. We've measured how much CO2 there was in the ice at Dome C. And in the wintertime, it kind of turns into an astronomy base and other extreme things that could be done in the dark for months at a time. And you're isolated, you're completely cut off. So there's no way of getting in or out. And there's roughly 10, 12 people live there the, the whole winter. And Beth was the doctor there working for us, studying psychology, studying physiology, with an aim to looking at how people, what we can learn from that long duration isolation, uh, what we can learn for going to Mars and missions like that. So you know, she's got a wealth of experience from spending over 12 months 
nonstop at this place in Antarctica. And she's got a lot of very interesting stories to tell us on Sunday. It's a really interesting point, Mark, because I think one of the first areas that people's minds go toward when they're talking about the long-term effects of being in space are the physiology of it all. But uh, but you mentioned the psychology of it also. I guess the just cabin fever, being cooped up, uh, but not having much to look at, all of those effects. Well, she tells a lovely story. I don't know if she'll have time on Sunday, so I'll, I'll give it away now, that there was somebody on the crew when she was down there for the whole winter uh, who kind of took a look at the supply of chocolate bars that they had for the whole winter for the whole crew and decided if they, that person, didn't do something about that, then the rest of the crew were just going to eat them all in the first month. So they hid them in the roof. They actually secreted them away, not for themselves, but to kind of preserve them for everybody else. And that kind of kicked in after a while. Those kind of psychological changes as people adjust to each other in isolation are exactly the kind of things we need to know. If you're going to spend a, send a crew of five to six people off on a two-year journey round trip to Mars and uh, people react very oddly under those conditions. And as much as you might pick them in advance for being very stable, laid back people, how will they really react in those environments? That We need to understand that better. Our next guest for Space Academy probably requires no introduction, uh, 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 Tim Peake, a man who spent six months on the International Space Station. You know, he's, uh, as we like to say, he's a European astronaut with a British passport. Uh, he works for the European Space Agency. He was in the British Army as a helicopter pilot beforehand. Uh, indeed, he spent six months on the ISS, as have all of his cohorts of astronauts who were recruited in 2009. Uh, they've all been up there uh, once now. And uh, in fact, one of the, his his friends, Alex Gerst, is going back to the space station in just a couple of months time, and he's going to be the commander of the space station. So yeah, Tim very successfully uh, became the first British ESA astronaut, uh, following on, of course, from Helen Sharman, who was the first British astronaut, flew with the Russians back in uh, around 1990, 1991, and then a few people who had who were British by birth but had American passports as well. Tim, as, as you said, needs no real introduction in the UK, and he's a genuinely nice guy to meet, and he's going back to the Space Rocks campaign he's really excited about doing this with us because of course it links the music up in the way he was doing from orbit now we're going to do it on the ground it's not just the human beings that are coming to this show we actually have a few other stars coming down as well uh, we're going to have some great models on display uh the rosetta probe the fillet lander i'm destined not to pronounce this right Hugens. <laughs> Huygens. even Huygens. i can't pronounce it it's, uh. it's a dutch name named for the scientist christian Huygens who discovered Titan uh, in orbit around Saturn, in fact. Uh, something I was very honored to uh, kind of uh, watch play out, the uh, the Axomars Trace Gas Orbiter and the Lisa Pathfinder, all fantastic models and exhibits that'll be on display, at, well, just throughout the venue on Sunday. I mean, Mark, when, when you look at these things and you kind of think about the kind of human hours that go into making them, it just does feel like science fiction to me. It's fascinating to see these objects, you know, that are designed to kind of survive and beam back things in space. And ESA have been really good at anthropomorphizing them all, right? You know, making <laughs> plush dolls. And however scientific you are, is it hard not to ascribe a kind of human dimension to these, I, I guess, you know, beloved objects of affection and research? 
certainly when sailors live on board ships, you know, that's historically been anthropomorphized or been given a, a, a female name. I, I don't know, actually, if the astronauts on the ISS actually have a, a gender assignment for the space station. Typically, when we talk about the spacecraft, people are incredibly attached to them. I mean, they spend you know, maybe half their career working on one mission. So it's inevitable that they become very attached. When we decided with Rosetta and Philae to anthropomorphize them, we were following on from actually the Japanese uh, space agency do a lot of this with their missions using anime or manga, whichever, both in fact. But something seemed to click with Rosetta and Philae that uh, they were you know, brother and sister from our perspective. They could talk to each other, describe the adventure they were on. It, it really worked for kids and actually for many adults as well. I think we have to be a little bit careful that, you know, we had some sort of um, sense that you're overdoing it, you're over-cutifying it. They're just, they're just boxes of electronics in the end. But, you know, horses for courses, for some people it worked really well. And for others, you know, maybe they're much more interested in the scientific and the technical sides. So whatever it takes to get people interested and engaged. It's going to be really cool to have those on display, certainly. To my mind, Rosetta, you know, perhaps because it is this, you know, iconic, but also so named after, you know, the Rosetta Stone, right? You know, just like this sort of slab of stone that gave people a clue into what the hieroglyphs meant and literally linked our world and an ancient one together. And I guess in the same way, the Rosetta probe, uh, well, I guess it unlocks secrets of a, of a different time. Exactly. You know, understanding the birth of the solar system, going to this ancient object four and a half billion years old, this comet, and using that to unlock the secrets of our present in some way. I think you know, when people come to uh, London on uh, Sunday to see see us there and they see the models you'll you know we'll see the rosetta model hanging from the ceiling and it's big it's eight meters across and you know it'll be pretty impressive hopefully everybody remembers that's only a quarter scale model <laughs> the real thing is the real thing is 32 meters across that's as big as an airbus a320 so uh, these, these are big things that we put into space I guess that leads us into something that's a little more freeform, uh, you know, session two, uh, which is our science fiction versus fact. I mean, when we were talking about putting this together, Mark, I, I guess it's because people's first introduction to a lot of space exploration doesn't come by the medium of science or academic papers, but, you know, the, the, the silver screen or, you know, books or reading and various kind of betrayals. I mean, is that frustrating from your perspective? Because, of course, I guess so much time is probably spent dismantling the realities from i guess the speculation certainly not frustrating i would say you know most of us or many of us at least here at isa and the various space agencies around the world science fiction was a big thing for us when we were young and you know i can i can name them you know, isaac asimov doctor who doctor who wasn't particularly realistic you could see the sets wobble i mean but it was about storytelling right it was about the the possibilities of placing yourself in a different uh, scenario and how would humans react in in a world which is different to the one we know so in some ways it's about exploring uh, the universe around us through through humans uh, so I think when it comes to storytelling in, in science fiction films, um, my frustration, if you like, depends on what, what it sets out to be. If it's Star Wars, if it's classic heroes, uh, the, you know, the whole Joseph Campbell idea about myths and heroes, cowboys and Indians in space, I don't question the science. I don't question whether those spacecraft should make noise in space. On the other hand, if you're going to make a film and say that it's realistic 
yeah, well, you know, different, right? I'm going to look at it and say, well, hold on, hold on. You can't get into a spacesuit in 30 seconds and get from one spacecraft to the other like that. And for me, you know, we've talked about this before, 2001. It's the it's the granddaddy of them all, 50 years old this year. And it got so much science right that, that there's a, that's a really high benchmark that very few films have ever come up to when it comes to being truthful about how space is. To flip it on his head, and I, I completely... Uh... You know, echo your sentiment, as you know. I mean, the first two minutes of 2001 never failed to completely floor me, not just for the way it portrays space, but just the sheer beauty of it all. You know, I mean, just that summation, the the kind of scooping together, of just like the visuals, the music, you know, just the everything about it is just kind of perfect. So to flip it on its head, does science fiction have a role to play in laying the groundwork for scientific research? I mean, there's so much that people sort of say oh look it's star trek now you know with uh, mobile phones or you know uh, when they are uh, trying to you know create i guess like a, a different kind of drive systems and so on i think it's probably a virtuous circle in both directions i mean clearly you can write science fiction that's completely insane just for reasons of telling a story imagine you know hyperlight drives going through black holes if you want to have a science fiction story that involves exploring lots of stars in the galaxy within a human lifetime you're going to be bending the rules no end so in that sense you know there can be pure macguffin type stuff where you just or just you know deus ex machina kind of just just make it up right but there are stories where you look at the technology uh, that's portrayed in science fiction 20, 30, 50 years ago, and you, think, you know some of that's really come true. And, and has that motivated people directly to go into the lab and say, oh, I saw something on this science fiction film. Let's go and invent one. Or is it just kind of you know, subliminal? Is it in the background that you sort of think, oh, you know, I, I wouldn't mind living in the future. Let's try to see what we can do with respect to some of these technologies. And of course, they're not all utopian either. There are some technologies and some some futures predicted in science fiction films which we would be well advised to steer well clear of. And maybe they can act as, well, if not deterrents exactly, maybe they can act as an illustration of the unintended consequences of technological development. Uh, and you have to think of ex machina, um, you know, artificial intelligence there in a robot. I think, you know, Three quarters away through that film, you were feeling a great deal of sympathy for that robot and really wanted to help it escape. Yeah, you know, watch the film to the end and you realize that uh, that's not the point at all. AI, you know, not just uh, a, a separate consideration, a consideration for space exploration as well. Am I right? I mean, because let's be honest, it, do humans belong in space? <laughs> it's a loaded question. You know, it's a question that comes up very often. I mean, people tend to sort of say, well, let's, let's go out there and we've been to the moon. So Mars has to be the next logical step. Mars an awful lot further away than the moon is. But then going to the stars, um, the nearest star to us is 100 million times further than the moon. So, you know, and our humans with 100 year lifetimes with, you know, our, our physiology, our needs temperature wise, uh, nutrition wise, uh, radiation wise. Can we go out to the stars? I don't think we as humans will go to the stars, not with the technologies we had today. But I do think that we will send our robots to the stars and those robots will be inevitably AI in some form or other. Will they remember us? Will they care about us? Will they actually feel that they're part of us? I think these are interesting questions about our legacy in an interstellar sense. It's just one of the many topics I hope we'll be addressing on Sunday. It should be fascinating. Science fiction versus fantasy. Of course, 
is going to feature a, a fairly excellent panel of enthusiasts and uh, actual players in the field, uh, including yourself, Mark. I mean, <laughs> do you want to do an introduction for yourself? Because I sure I'll get it wrong. So my, my job here at European Space Agency, I'm the senior advisor for science and exploration. That means I get to work with all of the missions in the science directorate, uh, you know, the, one, the telescopes in space, the missions going to other planets, also the robotic exploration of Mars, future missions to the moon, uh, human space flight as well. So I get to you know, deal with the science of all of those missions, try to bring that across to all of the committees that we have to work with in the European Space Agency and also to the general public. So it's a great interest of mine trying to think about how to integrate the science across the whole program. Uh, but also to see see into the future and see how that will influence the sorts of science experiments we'll be doing uh, with missions out another 50 years ahead of us. And you could call that science fiction, even though we're building it today. You'll be joined by some pretty special people. Obviously, uh, Tim Peake will be rejoining us for session two, science yep. fiction versus fact, quite something. Uh, an erstwhile ESA employee by the name of Alistair Reynolds. Uh, you may know him for his best-selling science fiction work. How do you know Alistair, Mark? <laughs> Alistair actually, he was working here in the same same area as I was. He left before I arrived here in 2009. He'll correct me, I'm sure, but I, the legend is that he got a million pound book con contract offer and, and walked out of the door. He had already written a whole bunch of uh, short science fiction stories. He was well known in that scene and he had written a couple of novels. Since leaving ESA, he's still closely connected with us. I mean, we, you know, he's a, he's a great guy. He's a, he's a fan of music as well. So it's fantastic to have him at Space Rocks. I've met him on a number of occasions. We've, we've talked about lots of things. He's a scientist at heart, but uses that knowledge to write some absolutely stunning, typically called hard science fiction, stuff that you think could happen. His Revelation Space series, the Poseidon's Children series. Uh, one of my favorites is a mission, is a book called Pushing Ice. I love to think was inspired by the development of Rosetta while he was here as a mission to a comet, a human mission to a comet. I can tell you by the end of the book, you're, you're, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore by the end of that book. It takes you to some crazy places. He'll be singing alongside another sci-fi great, uh, Gavin Rothery, uh, visual effects artist, perhaps best known as the co-creator of the Duncan Jones directed, arguably, I think, one of the best science fiction films this side of the turn of the millennium, Moon. Yeah, that's a great film. And of course, we can't really discuss it in great detail because if you haven't seen it, just, just go and watch it. It, it. it is a surprise from beginning to end. Uh, it's got a fantastic look. A little bit, I have to say, reminds me a little bit of the whole moon base alpha aesthetic of uh, Space 1999, something I grew up watching. So there's a, a fantastic look. It's it's not quite alien level of gritty, but it's a place where people are working and, you know, or in fact, one guy is working, Sam Rockwell playing the the astronaut there. Yeah, it's a lovely story, um, well put together, su supremely well crafted and, and visuals and all the all the concept design is a, it's a absolutely key part of it. Gavin is now making working on a feature length film himself. He's done some shorts. It, it'll actually be the first time I've met him personally, but we've talked quite a lot on social media and uh, of course, we have a mutual friend, uh, which we'll talk about later on. Indeed. We're going to be joined by uh, two of our artists who are playing at Space Rocks Live later in the day. John Mitchell from Lonely Robot and Charlotte Hadley, who, of course, was on the very first episode of the Space Rocks podcast. Uh, how do you know Charlotte, Mark? Well, this is a link to Gavin, actually. So uh, probably a year ago or so, uh, she released a single from her new album, a song called A Sign. And uh, she and Gavin had made this lovely video down on a beach called Pet Level, uh, which is on the south coast of, uh, of England. Same place as Ashes to Ashes was filmed uh, for Bowie's famous song. 
and she's a space alien and there's this fantastic backdrop of planets and uh, an alien world that they've created there and i saw this online i love the music I've, I've known charlotte's music through through ash in particular for a long time i just saw it online loved the film we were already talking about space rocks sent her a direct message on twitter and here we are a year later she's a a firm friend a great science fiction geek great musician lovely person and uh, we're really looking forward to having her on the panel and then as we'll talk about in a minute playing later on in the evening playing on ahead of uh, our headlining act lonely robot featuring john mitchell a massive science fiction fan he named lonely robot after the vision he had in his head of a mars rover being abandoned and and left behind i mean all of his music is conceptually linked to space mark but how do you describe it to to someone that hasn't experienced it before is it is it pure prog or what that's well, a good question. You know, John is a, a polymath in many ways. He's, he plays in a whole bunch of bands. I first came across him in one of my favorite bands, Frost, uh, you might call a, some ways a prog supergroup. Recorded several albums together, but he's also in, in bands like Arena. He's in It, it Bites. Uh, he has his own band, uh, Lonely Robot. He's a producer as well. He's worked with many artists. So, uh, you know, I've, I've met him on and off over the years. And I remember actually... We, must have been five or six years ago we were standing in a kitchen somewhere somebody had staged a kind of a small house gig with him and jem godfrey from frost uh, and we were standing in the kitchen talking about whether gas giants have solid surfaces or not you know and he asked the question right and he's like oh well uh. so we, was, he's very interested in space he told me and i'm absolutely sure it's true when he was a young man he had the luck to meet neil armstrong so you know he's, he's his music plays off that but it spans quite a wide spectrum of rock pop maybe on you'd call on the it bites end uh, and the progressive stuff is through and through he's a great guitarist great singer great songwriter so i think you know the lonely robot show it's conceptual it's about robots lost in space so to speak i think there's some great stuff to be to be heard by everybody coming along on sunday there <laughs> I'll be joined by uh, another uh, guy who I hear moonlight as a guitarist, Dr. Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes, yes. So no, it was a great, great pleasure to have Brian coming along. I've, I've known Brian for a little while on and off. And I was a, an academic, actually, at the University of Exeter about 10 years ago. We gave him an honorary degree because, as famously most people know, he interrupted his studies doing undergraduate astrophysics, a PhD, actually, he was studying for at that point. He interrupted that to join a little-known band called Queen, back in the early 70s and uh, came back to all of that work uh, early 2000s finished his phd and his work is actually on light scattered from dust in the solar system what we call zodiacal light material left over from the birth of the solar system so there you are there's a link straight to comets uh, to planets around other stars so yeah i met him back then and we you and i have met him on a couple of occasions around and he's big friend of course of matt taylor post rosetta He's very keen on astronomy when it comes to amateur type astronomy and getting amateur pictures and making stereo pictures out of them. And he's going to be bringing some of that along for everybody to have a look at uh, on Sunday. We shouldn't leave out Dallas Campbell, uh, who's going to be chairing the panel. Of course, uh, you know, our, our host for the day. Tell us a bit about Dallas. I mean, uh, you know, he, he's got books out. He's a fantastic science communicator, but you've been you've been working with him for a little while, Mark. Yes and no. You know, I've actually never met him. We had this running joke between the pair of us that we, we've been working, we've been talking, we've been emailing, we've been, uh, we actually have a connection to Beth Healy, who we talked about earlier on. We put some projects together on 
exploration type things. We seem to avoid each other. Everything we've been to, we've been on different days. So he's a great science communicator and a huge fan of space. Uh, his, his most recent book about how you go into space, basically, how do you get off the planet Earth and how do you go out into space? And that's that's doing really well. He's going to bring along his own spacesuit as well, or rather a flight, a so-called suit, a Russian spacesuit that's been into space. If I'm if I'm right, uh, I'll have to look at it again. I think it's one of Michael Fole's uh, spacesuits. Michael Fole is one of these guys, British by birth, dual nationality, American, one of the most flown space uh, explorers of all time. Uh, Dallas is going to bring that suit along, so it'll be good for people to see what it what you really have to wear to go into space. That precedes space rocks live we we touched on it a little bit i mean how would you describe charlotte hadley's music i mean to my mind it's like a synth infused futuristic ambient electronic guitarless rock sci-fi masterpiece how's that yeah. <laughs> you haven't you, you haven't you haven't left any words for me right that's a good one i mean of course people know her from ash and uh, you know that sort of three minute perfect pop songs uh, she's a guitarist you know fantastic there but she kind of switched over completely in the last few years to partly writing soundtracks she wrote a soundtrack for gavin rothery's short film the last man her whole album is kind of a you know a, a post breakup pop music album very 1980s influenced there's there's, there's Vangelis flowing through there as well in one of her tracks, uh, an instrumental. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very synth-driven, um, but very sci-fi influenced. Um, as you say, there's there's everything there. So uh, let's see what she's going to play on Sunday. I'm really, really interested in seeing which songs she brings out. The one I'm hoping she'll play, and it sounds completely weird, it's not my musical taste, but the way she's done it's good. Uh, she recently released a cover of the Bee Gees song, How Deep Is Your Love? You know, it's it's how deep is your love on drugs? Definitely. There's, there's something very wild about it. But we provided her a custom piece of space animation based on our Gaia mission. The movement of stars in the constellation Orion predicted for the next three million years based on the data from Gaia and an earlier mission. And that's the backdrop to that video. So I'm kind of hoping she plays that song. Uh, you get your Bee Gees kick, you get some space, you get some synthesizers. That should be a really cool thing to listen to. You mentioned Van Gelis, probably inseparable from the set that we're getting from Arcane Brutes, who are doing a very unique synth range set that's never been heard before, certainly. Uh, you actually got to hang out with them uh, over, over there at Aztec, didn't you? They'd got in touch with you, of course, and you know, they, they were thrilled about the idea of doing Space Rocks. And just turned out that we're here um going through on tour just a recently a tour around europe i think we were in amsterdam came by uh, we had them down here for the day uh we took them into our huge test facility called the hertz chamber at the back end of Aztec, which is a place which is acoustically completely dead but also very importantly elect electrically very dead and we put our big antennas for our spacecraft the big dishes which receive and transmit signals and in this huge, enormous chamber, we simulate them being in space and making sure they perform properly. And and uh, to see Arcane Roots and, and their crew sort of standing, staring at the ceiling, just blown away by this this amazing space, uh, that was that was a real pleasure. And they were they were fantastic. You know, they were just really interested in what we do. You know, it's going to be great having them there. I've listened to quite a bit of their music now. People who know them, they're, they're you know kind of a heavy, fairly you know. Um, math rock type band at times but they've done they've been moving over toward the synthesizers and the electronic stuff and they've said they're going to do a new set nobody's heard it before maybe some new music in there so i think anybody who's a fan of that kind of uh, music should definitely come and listen to that it's going to be rounded out by john mitchell's 
Lonely Robot. Uh, you know, we touched on it before. Expansive music, conceptually linked. Uh, it's actually part of a uh, a, a trilogy of records. Uh, Lonely Robot, uh, an allegory for the human experience, but you know, literally interpreted. It's all about a lone astronaut's journey through space, and a fantastic way to round out space rocks london it's gonna be a fantastic day uh mark i i gotta tell you i'm, I'm just so excited to finally see <laughs> this happening the one thing we shouldn't forget there alex of course as well we're going to have this space space lounge as we call it we're going to have a space upstairs there at the venue where people will be able to come and hang out uh i think you and i are going to have to try to deal with the logistics there it's not quite as big as we might hope but we'll get people squeezed in bit by bit we're going to have some friends there as you know locally from the royal observatory greenwich just down the road in london but also uh, a friend of mine a guy called jeff notkin uh, he's a displaced brit lives in tucson arizona where i used to live many years ago and he's known on television as one of the two meteorite men so that's what jeff does for a living he goes out and finds meteorites and sells them and he's has a TV program called Meteorite Men in the US. Uh, he's a, a lovely guy, and they're going to bring some actual meteorites, some space rocks for people to see, some stuff that's billions of years old that was floating around in space before tumbling to Earth. And I think that that is a lovely thing to have as part of the day um, because we're going to be talking space rocks. Come and see some real ones as well. Some actual space rocks and space rocks. Just back from the Sahara, as I understand it, actually sur searching for meteorites, am I right? Yeah, it's one of the places, you know, there's sort of two easy places, if you like, relatively to find meteorites. One of them is in the Sahara because it's a big uh, area with lots of very uniform colored sand. And if you can spot black rocks on the surface there, then very often these will be meteorites. The other place is Antarctica. Um, so lots of meteorites have been found in Antarctica, similar sort of thing. Lots of white, an expanse of white, spot a black rock sticking on top of millions of years worth of ice. It did not come from underneath. It came from above. It came from outer space. And that's actually the place where we found rocks have fallen from space and we can measure their properties and trace where they came from. And we can we actually know of some, a handful of meteorites that came from Mars. So even before we've gone to Mars, with astronauts, with rovers as we have today, we already have in our hands pieces of Mars which were found in Antarctica, knocked off the planet in a collision, made their way to the Earth millions of years later. I'm not sure if Jeff is going to bring some Mars rocks or moon rocks, but I rather imagine he's got some in store. There's guaranteed to be some very cool stuff up there, certainly. Of course, as you say, alongside the Royal Observatory Greenwich, uh, we'll have All About Space magazine, Brian May's London Stereoscopic Company, which I should say he's not the founder of, but the reviver of, apparently, the company uh -huh. existed okay. back in the 1900s, and a whole lot more as well. Uh, for more information on precise timings, just go to spacerocksofficial.com. If you don't get to come to Space Rocks, on Sunday. You can watch our Twitter feed. And of course, we'll have all kinds of material coming out after the event. Tickets are still available for sessions two and three. Uh, just go to spacerocksofficial.com stroke tickets and come see us on Sunday. Mark, what an absolute pleasure it's going to be to see you again. Likewise, Alex. Uh, you know, we've spent a long time working on this together and uh, lots of friends, lots of people are going to be there. Let's make it a real celebration of everything it means for us to be exploring space, whether it's literally as we do with uh, our missions out there or musicians exploring space in a, in a completely different way arts culture it's what it's all about getting people together to talk to get inspired and uh, i'm looking forward to it immensely indeed may, may long may it continue and may it be the very first step mark thanks so much for your time and we'll talk to you all next time thanks for listening in.